title for today's message is, we begin with repentance. Repentance is where the message of Christ and the message of his church begins. Think about the uh, work and ministry of John the Baptist. He came to lay the groundwork for Jesus, and he taught a message of repentance. That's what he did to prepare people for the ministry of Christ. That doesn't mean that he did it so Jesus didn't have to. Actually, we're going to see that that is very much part of what Jesus taught about. Repentance is how we begin a process. It is a process of self-examination, self-correction, and self-awareness. I want to really dig in on that one. It's a process whereby we change the direction of our life towards eternal life rather than death. Or as I've been talking about in the past few weeks, non-being, just like not existing anymore. And repentance has a real psychological and spiritual benefit for us, even now in our, in our lives today. Not just looking forward, but even now. And repentance also has an ongoing role in the life of every believer. And today, we will discuss repentance using this same outline. I have a few points. We'll have the message of repentance. We'll take a look at self-examination. We'll take a look at the benefits of repentance and the enduring role of repentance. So that's the structure, that's the outline. Let's go to the next slide, which is really just a slide that tells you where we're at in our four basic points. I made a handout. Look how small it is. Isn't it cute? And the idea there is these are a bunch of scriptures which I think are really good for you to think about and look at, but not ones that I want to go through item by item. Okay? So you've got these, and I encourage you to go through them, but the point of these scriptures is simply show you this is the beginning of preaching. This is the beginning of the message. Whether you're talking about Jesus Christ, whether you're talking about John the Baptist, or whether you're talking about the church that followed up. So our creator has a message for humanity. Our creator, God, has a message for humanity. And it begins, that message begins with the need for Repentance. Now, when human beings are left to their own devices, when we are left alone, we don't really see a need to change. I mean, if you think of people that you've known and talked to, and, you know, if you've had any depth of conversation, most times you get the impression they don't really see some deep-seated need to change anything about their, their lives. Now, look... People might want to change certain things about their lives. They might want to alter aspects of their behavior. And you know, you see your TED Talks are full of all this kind of thing. Little things that you can do to tweak your life so that maybe you know, you'll improve your health or you'll improve your bank account or you'll improve your career. So people are into change. Yes. Yes, they are. You know, or, or you know, people might want to change the political scene and they might want to you know, make a difference in the world that way so that we can make life better for more people, that sort of thing. So there is a desire for change, but repentance, repentance 
and, and, and a change that reaches down into the depths of who and what we are and uh, how we see ourselves? No. No, no, no. No. That's not something that humans are naturally going to gravitate towards. We, humans, and I, I mean, we're all human here, we humans mostly see ourselves as being on the right track. You know, maybe I need a little adjustment here and there, but basically on the right track. You know, I'm, I'm basically a good person. I think that's the general outlook. But God comes on the scene, <laughs> and he says otherwise. And I put it to you that if you think about it, human beings, we're all included in this, only know that there is a need for change or repentance because our Creator tells us so. Otherwise, I think, I know, well, my experience has been, we think, I'm all right, Jack. I don't need any help. I've got it pretty much figured out. But God says, no. Now, we only know, for example, that we are dead in our sins because God breaks into our, our little self-satisfied world and tells us so. And uh, that's why so many people don't really like God. The true God. Because he tells you stuff like that. You know, you really, you need to change. Like, seriously, change. And people respond to that, you know, they don't like it, they don't like hearing it. And some people just reject God outright. And some make it work by creating a fictional version of God the Creator that they can then, you know, kind of turn into a puppet that will say whatever they really want to hear. And different ways to respond to God's message of repentance. Now, Jesus came representing the true God. He was God, he was with God, and he came in the flesh, dwelt among men. And he began his teaching by declaring the necessity of repentance. I gave you that list there, and I, the first section of it are some scriptural examples. And I, I did away with the ones that are repetitive, where you've got the same um, incident reported in you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So I tried to pick all unique ones. And these are all instances where Jesus declared the necessity of repentance, which is really a different message than most people think Jesus came with. The Church of God takes over where Jesus left off. The Church is sent forth by Jesus to continue his work. And the Church of God takes over where Jesus left off and declares a message of repentance. Woe unto us if we do not. We must declare this message. And it is a message that isn't just for Jews. It isn't just for uh, people who are called it's for everybody, and God's message of repentance is for everyone. Go with me to Mark 1, verse 14. We're going to take a few samplings. I gave you a more complete list, of course, in a cute little handout. But uh, let's take a look at Mark 1, verse 14. And it says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, and he proclaimed the good news of God. And I think, you know, it's kind of, sometimes that's where people stop. What did he say? The time has come. 
He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You know, Mark's very succinct. And he boils it down, and this is the core of Jesus' teaching. And it begin, begins with a declaration of the necessity for repentance. He you know, talks about, well, God has a plan. The time has come. You know, there's an answer. There's a solution. The kingdom of God. I'm announcing the kingdom of God. But what you got to do, folks, is repent and believe. Notice that repent comes before believe, though, which is why I say we begin with repentance. Now go with me to Acts 2, verse 38. Preaching of the church. This is a, we, we go here a lot. This is the first sermon. After Jesus is gone, then the church must carry on. Peter's, he's speaking the truth to people, and he says in verse 38, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. That is the beginning of the church's preaching. Repent. You need to change. It's not full of promises. The message doesn't begin with promises. It begins with a call to repentance. And that is an appropriate response, you know, because the people ask Peter, okay, he is talking about what happened, the events and Jesus' death, and, and their question is, okay, what do we do then? Repent. Because these things are true, because these things have happened, repent. I mean, I talked to you a little bit about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Okay. So what should your response to that be? If the reality of God's judgment is made more apparent by some archaeological discovery not around the Dead Sea, what should your response be? Hmm, that's interesting. No, your response should be, repent! You know, oh boy, I need, to be, I need to be serious about this. You know, you always need little reminders and little prods and pushes. I'm not saying that turns everything around for you. Let's go to 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Of course, this is part of Peter's response to people who say, where is the promise of God's coming? This is just ridiculous. You know, it's just, we're just spinning around in this globe. Nothing ever really changes. And he says, no, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Maybe it may seem like a long time since you've heard from God, but he is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to peace, love, and understanding. No, it's not what it says. It says repentance, because the message begins with repentance. If you want peace, you want love, you want understanding, you gotta start with repentance. And this message is for everyone. God is patient not wanting anyone to perish and die. But he wants everyone to come to repentance. It is something everybody is going to have to come face to face with. God's mercy, his patience, his discipline, the suffering of his people and the prophets is to get people started on the path towards eternal life, which begins with repentance. And it's necessary for everybody. Well, got a problem. Houston, we've got a problem. 
Repentance is not a popular message. And I have made the case that this is the message of Jesus Christ. It's the message of the church. That part two on the handout there are examples of the church teaching repentance. You can go through those and I encourage you to do that. Let's go to the next slide. Repentance is not a popular message. No, it isn't. Repentance and self-examination. Second, second part of our look into repentance. When we become convicted, like those people who were listening to Peter, they were convicted. They felt, oh, 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 convicted. We done wrong. What do we do? When we become convicted that God's righteous commandments really do define righteousness. Now, that's part of that conviction when you take a look at God's commandments and you think, this really does matter. These do define eternal life. These define what I, I want to do if I want to be there. You come to that conviction that they really are the path to eternal life. What do you then do? Well, I think logically, rationally, you're going to compare yourself to the standard. As James said, you look into the royal law, the mirror, what do you see? You see your reflection. You go, ooh, boy, I need to deal with that. You look into it. You compare yourself against that standard. And then we begin to realize how much we fall short of the high standards set by Christ. What's the result of that? We feel bad. Guilt, remorse, sorrow. When you do that, you feel bad. Oh, that's the standard. Here's me. Oh, we feel bad. Now, next slide. As a rule, human beings do not like feeling bad. Raise your hand if you like feeling bad. No takers, huh? Okay, I should put my hand down because I don't either. As a rule, we do not like feeling guilt or remorse or sorrow. No, no, no. Those feel bad. They feel very bad. And as human beings, we are looking for solutions. We're problem-solving beings. All right? We look for solutions. We want to address those bad feelings. How do we address Bad feelings. One way, contradiction and denial. One way to address bad feelings, one way to get rid of, if you feel guilt or remorse or negative emotions, uh, a great way of dealing with them is just to contradict them. Well, I have nothing to feel guilty about. Now, you hear that an awful lot these days. I don't need to feel bad about that. You want to, you know, you look at some of the stuff that's going on in our society, some of the perversion that's going on. Part of the message is there that is there is you don't need to feel bad about any of this stuff. Be proud. So there's contradiction. There's there's other stuff, there's denial. Uh, you could say, well, you know, God's commands don't really mean that. They're kind of something different. You interpret it this way, God's commandments don't really mean that. Or you might just get straight up 
Well, Jesus took care of that for me. There are a variety of ways to contradict and deny these bad feelings that you get. Guilt, sorrow, remorse, when you compare yourself against the high standard. What's another way of dealing with it? I put it to you, this is the biblical way. Repentance and change. How do we deal with bad feelings? And I think sometimes we get the wrong idea that repentance is about stirring up bad feelings. No, repentance is about dealing with bad feelings that come through the conviction that we get from God's law. The biblical way is to respond to those feelings of guilt or remorse or sorrow with repentance. And repentance seeks to resolve the problem rather than push it away, like through contradiction or denial. Next slide. So I want to just, I want to put it to you in different words. You've heard this before. This is the message the church has been giving you for decades. I'm just rewording it a little bit, okay? And I'm going to talk about repentance on two levels, simple and complex, okay? This really isn't something new. It's just my way of putting it, okay? I put it to you that repentance operates on two levels, both very necessary. First, we've got repentance, which I'm going to characterize as simple. doesn't mean it's easy. But I'm going to call it simple, which is repentance from dead works, which is sin, transgression of God's law, you know, breaking, violating known laws. That is a very fundamental concept. Okay? And uh, second is repentance, which is deeper. And it is a recognition of our true nature and its fundamental opposition to God. Go with me to Romans 8, verse 7. Another one of those great memory scriptures that we go to over and over and over again for good reason. Romans 8, verse 7 says, The mind governed by the flesh carnal mind, as the old King James would put it. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That is an open door to a whole other level of repentance. Now the simple repentance, okay, the simple repentance, dealing with sin, dealing with sinful acts, is 100% necessary. It has to happen. Very important. And Christ's sacrifice gives us what I'm going to call a straightforward formula for getting things set right for sinful acts. Next slide, if you would. So this cycle, the arrows are a little weeny, but you see it's a cycle there. It goes around and around and around and around and around and around. And around. So there's this cycle. And I'm characterizing this as a cycle that represents the, the, the simple or the basic form of repentance, which is absolutely necessary, must happen. So there's this cycle, committing sin, transgression, seeking forgiveness, and then receiving forgiveness and atonement. That forgiveness and atonement is, I mean, there's the transgression, then there's seeking forgiveness, which is repentance, and then there's the receiving of forgiveness and atonement, which is through Christ's sacrifice, and this is a cycle. Very, very important. But that cycle of committing sin, seeking forgiveness, receiving forgiveness, is missing something. 
is missing something. What's missing? What's missing is simply this. Of itself, the cycle does not change us. It doesn't change who we are. As Paul would say, the law was unable to do these things. It was ineffective in this way. Because the cycle here doesn't change that which in it, which is deep down within us, which needs to be changed. Look, you could go through this cycle, friends, and we've all done it. You make a mistake, you seek forgiveness, you receive forgiveness through the blood of Christ. You can go over and over and over and over. Lying, adultery, Sabbath breaking. And you can go through this cycle over and over and over again. And we do. But going, just going through the cycle doesn't change us. It atones for sin. It's very necessary. Very necessary. It must happen. We need Christ's sacrifice to cover over our sins. They have to be covered over, but it doesn't change who and what we are. That cycle, going through it, doesn't address some very important issues. Let me give you a few. Uh, it doesn't address pride. It doesn't address hardness of the heart. It doesn't address lack of generosity. Or the other fruits of the flesh, if you will. If you want to read through the fruits of the flesh, they're in Galatians 5. Those are different. You can keep the whole cycle of legal obedience and still be a very hard-hearted person. We'll get down to that a little more. Okay? Now, there is another aspect of repentance, and I've called it complex. Okay. And you might have heard it over the years as true repentance. The church might have put it, you know, true, meaningful repentance. And I didn't like the way that was put because it kind of implies that this simple repentance is uh, not necessarily the real deal. I put it to you, you need both. You need this. You need something more. Complex repentance is what I'm calling it. Meaningful, effective repentance is more than resolving feelings of guilt and sorrow over sinful actions. Complex, involved repentance reaches down into the innermost parts of your psyche. And it asks, why do you gravitate towards disobedience in the first place? And it tackles the hidden problems of attitude, motivation, and emotions, which I, I touched on a few, you know, pride, Greed, hardness of heart, stuff like that. So deep repentance, perhaps is another way of putting it. Deep repentance recognizes these attitudes that are in there. Recognizes them and recognizes thought processes that we have and recognizes those are bad. Those are bad. And recognizes that we have a need to alter, replace, or remove them. And this level of repentance is committed to overcoming them. So repentance is not just compliance with a system of religious rules. These things have to happen. God wants you to deal with transgressions. But he also wants a level of repentance that is deeper. And I call it a level of self-awareness. Next slide. Let's take a look at some scriptural examples. Alrighty? Some scriptural examples. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 7. 
and verse 9. And they probably uh, should add a little bit of the backstory here. Um, in 1 Corinthians, there was a scene or scenario where this person in the congregation was flagrantly committing sin and they weren't dealing with it. And Paul got on their case and said, you need to deal with this and you're, you know, you're not dealing with it. And they, they did. Okay, and then he is kind of circling back here in this second letter, because all that stuff was addressed in the first letter to the Corinthians. And I hope you're familiar with that. Uh, that's a bit of the backstory. And so let's take a look at what he says here in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 through 13. It says, okay, uh, let me back up to verse 8. Even though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Although, it, you know, I did feel bad about it. I do regret it a bit. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. And at every point you've proven yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. Okay, so I gave you the backstory. Now what they did is they, they dealt with it. They kicked the guy out, right? And they dealt with it. That was what I was talking about earlier, that first level of repentance. They dealt with sin, right? They dealt with obvious transgression. They took the necessary steps to rectify the situation. They confronted the sin. They removed it from among themselves. But if look at what Paul's most excited about here. What he's really, you know, enthused about is... That second level of repentance that touches on their attitudes. What does he congratulate them for? He says their godly sorrow led them to be diligent, to be indignant, their attitude towards the sin, to be fearful of God, though their attitude towards God, and zealous. These are the things that he commends them for, where previously they had been indifferent and you know, kind of smug and pleased with themselves. What he's really getting at is, or excited about, I will, is that there's more than one level of repentance going on here. Yeah, they had to deal with the guy for sure. But he's really fired up about the change that it's given these people to their outlook and their way of dealing with things. Go to the, uh, Luke 18. And we'll take a look at another very familiar section of Scripture. If it's not familiar, well, we're... Going to start on your journey towards familiarity with it. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Starting in verse 9, Jesus speaking here says to some of those people who were confident of their own righteousness and they looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, 
God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now Jesus' commentary. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, one of the many contrasts, and there's, there's a, you know, a dozen, dozen ways you can approach this parable, and you've heard it discussed in different ways. One of the contrasts to be found in this parable is how these two men saw themselves. We got the Pharisee on one hand. He sees himself as a good person. I'm a good person. And uh, he did that by comparing himself to other people. I'm not like other men. Not like other people. What he's not doing is he's not comparing himself to the high standard of righteousness, which is the glory of God, which we see in Christ. That's what he's not doing. He is, though, he is successful in avoiding obvious problems. He's successful in avoiding evil, uh, theft, adultery. He's got spiritual discipline. He fasts a lot. And he's a diligent tithe payer. And I think it's important that we don't get the, ever get the idea that these things don't please God. He wants stuff like that. He wants you to avoid evil. But he also wants something else. And this is the guy who wasn't giving it to him. And, you know, I think that it might be this man's great success at avoiding evil and so forth that causes him his big problem, which is he can't see his own pride. He can't see his pride and his hard-heartedness and contempt for other people. That's the stuff that bugs God. These are the things that God hates if you read, you know, Proverbs and so forth. Five things that God hates. He hates that kind of stuff. God hates those sort of attitudes. And this man needs to repent of them. Now the other man, the other man knows he's got problems and he needs to repent. And, you know, look, is he comparing himself um, to other people and saying, oh, I'm not as good as this man? Or is he comparing himself to the high standard of Jesus Christ? We don't know. This parable doesn't tell us that information. What we do get from this is God's eye view of those two men. And God's eye view of these two men is focused on their inner motives and their attitudes. It's about humility, pride, that kind of pointed out there. And God very much wants us to avoid evil, do good, have spiritual discipline, support the work. But he wants us to go to a, I'm going to call it a higher level. And repent of some things that are really hard to get at. Now, let's take a look at how God sometimes gets at them. Go to Job. Job 1. Sometimes God gets to us through pain. In fact, a lot of times. Good for us if we don't have to be stricken with the rod. 
That's rare. Let me read Job 1, verse 5. It says, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. And this man was blameless and upright. He feared God, and he shunned evil. Good. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular custom. So not only was he a good man, but he was doing the whole sacrifice thing just in case. He had it covered. He always did what was right. And he was very pleasing to God. Very pleasing to God, I think. God says so. But God allows him to be subject to terrible trials and suffering. And I, I know I've mentioned this before. I'm presuming a lot of understanding of the book of Job. If you have not gone through the book of Job, please do. Very important book for understanding suffering and repentance on a very fundamental level. So Job has some terrible trials. You know, I'm not going to go through them all. They were bad. He lost everything. His health, his family, his children, his, his, all his wealth, everything. And in the process of all this pressure being applied to this man, Job, a problem comes to the surface. Job was proud of his righteousness. <laughs> he was proud of his righteousness. I mean, he had a lot to be proud of, but he was proud of his righteousness, and that yeah, is a problem. That really reached down into the guts of who this man was. He was proud even to the point where he would argue that God was treating him unfairly. And there's 40 chapters of that argumentation. That God just didn't understand how righteous he was, and this really wasn't fair. Even to the point, and I'm not going to go through Job's whole argument because it's 40 chapters long, but he even gets to the point of saying, I wish there was a higher power that we, I could appeal to in this controversy between me and God. Not really acknowledging or understanding. God is the highest power. There is no court of appeal beyond God. So he had some pride. Is a man more righteous than God? Go to Job 38, verse 1. So after all this, God reaches out to Job and he's going to answer him. And it says, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And he said, who is this who, I believe the King James says, darkens counsel. Uh, NIV says, obscures my plans with words without knowledge. I looked into that and um, literally the word there, obscures, means throw shade upon. <laughs> I thought it was funny because, you know, it's one of the things that the kids say now. You know, hey, you're throwing shade on me, you know. That's what it means, literally. You're casting shade on my plans. Uh, which, you know, basically means you're darkening, you're questioning my plans. Okay. So God answers Job out of the storm, which indicates that Job has some sort of a direct encounter with God. I mean, think of Moses, who encounters God in a storm, Elijah, uh, etc. And God's response to Job is two chapters long, so I, I'm really not able to go through it all line by line. But Job gets this response from God, and uh, it's basically a call for Job to see himself in relation to God the Creator. 
stop comparing himself to other men, against which he was exemplary. Go to Job 40, verses 3 through 4. Just a few highlights. Then Job answered God, the Lord, and he says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I mean, I've been arguing with God. This is crazy. I put my hand over the, my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Go to chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. Job says, this is getting close to the end here, and Job's really realizing what's going on. He says, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Sort of saying, I, I, I've heard about you. Now I've really kind of like experienced this. And therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So when he's comparing himself with the absolute standards of righteousness, he comes to this conclusion. Oh, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm not the, the pinnacle of righteousness. And he has nothing to say. Now, I bring this out because very often we only see areas where we need to rethink our attitudes and motives and emotions when we're in a crisis. Physical pain, sickness, loss of status, lose your job, lose your mate, loss of possessions, bankrupt or whatever, some life-threatening situation. Sometimes that's what happens. And, you know, we can get angry with God. But his answer is, and he's saying this to Job, he says it more succinctly in the book of Hebrews, um, you know, this is discipline, son. This is discipline, my child. I'm doing this for your own good. Go with me to Philippians. Let's take a look at uh, some pain. Um, or no, not pain so much. Um, just another example of someone who, who had a crisis. Paul, Philippians 3, and Paul tells us those little bits and pieces about his, himself, what he was like before he changed, before he repented. And in Philippians 3, uh, starting in verse 4, it says, uh, he's talking about people who are touting their credentials as men of the circumcision who are really close to God's law, and they're trying to get people to focus on that. And he says, look, I have, I, Paul, in verse 4, I have plenty of reason for that kind of confidence, okay? If someone thinks they have confidence or reasons to put confidence in flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he's a man who knew how to speak Hebrew. He could, most people couldn't. He knew the scriptures. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Wow. So look, Paul was a very righteous man. By the written standards of the law, he was an extremely righteous man. And his own estimation of him was, as far as righteousness based on the law, faultless. He was taking care of business. Something was wrong. There was another level of repentance that he needed. God made him. He was also violent. He was filled with nationalistic pride, racial pride, you know, if you look at the Jewish, Jewish situation. He was unmerciful, hard hearted. 
even though he was doing everything that God's law was telling him to do. And God wanted Paul to repent. Because he's looking for, I put it to you, this complex level, this level of repentance that reaches deeper down. And the only way he could get to Paul, and I hope you know the story of Paul, I'm going to presume that you know a fair bit about it, was to strike Paul down as he was charging off to his next conquest and blind the man and humiliate him and, you know, appear to him. And he had a crisis. Paul had a crisis because the God that he thought he was, you know, serving, he reached out and said, what are you doing, you knucklehead? Stop it! And blinded him. That's a crisis. So we're in Philippians 3. Let's take a look at verses 7 through 9. Paul says, but whatever were gains for me, he's looking back on all this you know, great stuff that he was doing as a Pharisee. All that stuff, there were gains to me, good things I now consider a complete loss for the sake of Christ. He's putting them behind him. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. This righteousness that he sees in Christ is better than any of the other stuff that he had going on. And he wanted it. And he was going to let everything go. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul was driven to a point of repentance that went beyond the letter of the law, beyond obedience. And God wants obedience. He wants that level of repentance, that level that we looked at. I'm calling it simple repentance. You know, He wants that, but he wants, mm, he wants you to go to the next level. So we wanted for Paul, I'm going to take you to the next level, buddy. And Paul came to understand the righteousness of Christ, which was better than anything he had. Because it actually was the righteousness that gets down into the psyche and the attitudes and the motives and really takes us to the love of God. And he found this, and like the man who found the pearl of great price, he was willing to give everything he had for this. Because it was better than anything he had. And so what's happening, though, is that, that that same law, that same obedience, that same diligence that Paul had um, was now going to be channeled differently. He didn't stop being a zealous, obedient, law-abiding man. But all that zeal and all that law-keeping was now going to be channeled through a mindset that was very different, a mindset of love and mercy and humility. Same law, different attitude. And it was a radical change for a man like Paul. But it was dealing with his attitude. He didn't stop being obedient and law-abiding, zealous, but he repented of his outlook and his attitudes and his perspectives. And he went on to pursue the righteousness that is in Christ. Next slide. So those are some examples of what I mean by more than one level of re repentance. 
So let's take a look at the benefits of repentance. What's in it for me? What's in it for you? The benefits of repentance. Okay, trusting and surrendering to God lead to peace and joy. And you can experience that in your life today. You'll still have suffering. You'll still have problems. But you can have peace and joy. It doesn't come the way we think it's going to come, but it's there. It's out there for you. Repentance is the beginning of your spiritual journey. You know, when we repent, we cry out to God for forgiveness. On one level, the simple level, but also on the complex level. And we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. We took a look at that last time I spoke here. We talked about the sacrifice of Christ. And we surrender ourselves completely to God. If we look at our lives, we realize, you know, we don't know what we're doing. In many cases, you made a mess of it, how I felt. And you make a conscious decision to obey. Next slide. You make a conscious decision to obey. Surrender yourself to God. So, obedience. We commit to a change in our behavior, and we obey. And we surrender ourselves to do his will and to do what he instructs us to do. That's why you're here today. Why I'm here today. That in some ways equates to the, sim more, the simple type of repentance that I was talking about. Although I think there's a fair bit of overlap here. And then the other side is trust. And there's a lot of overlap here. But trust, I'm putting it in a different category because I want to draw out a point we allow God to take control of our life. We surrender to God. Okay, you know what's best. You know, when it comes to a trial, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to pain. I, you know, it's hard, but you have to reach the point where you say, yeah, God, you know what you're doing. And this is, this is for the best. And I, you know, submit yourself to that and you trust God. That's how you get peace and that's how you get joy. We commit, I think, to a complete rewiring of our way of thinking, our mind, and our spirit. We trust God to take control of our life. And he uses instruction together with trials and together with suffering and other life experiences so that we can learn about ourselves. You know? And uh, usually we're learning the awful truth about ourselves. <laughs> but we learn about ourselves and we work together with him to change it. Now, neither of these commitments, both of which are essential, neither of these commitments are easy or pleasant. And we're tempted, I think, we are tempted to take back control of our lives. You know, sometimes it just seems like, well, God's asking too much. <laughs> That's just too much, you know. I'm going to take back control. I, I'm, you know... I know I've let you have this steering wheel for a while, God, but I need it back right now because this is getting a little hairy here. And you know, I, I have more confidence in my ability to get through this than you. So give me back the control of the wheel and I'm going to drive for a little while. I'll give it back to you later, but for now, I want the wheel. So we might do that. We might surrender, but then we might want to take back control of our lives and we stop trusting God so much and stop surrendering. But when we trust, really trust, and when we surrender and put it together with confidence and faith in God's ability to deliver, God's understanding of the situation, knowing that he is disciplining, knowing that he knows what is best, then we can experience 
peace and joy. The old, the old song, Trust and Obey, There Is No Other Way. Have you ever heard that song? <laughs> That's an oldie but a goodie, right? Yeah, uh, very old. <laughs> Trust and obey, there's no other way. Yeah, basically. Go to the next slide if you would. Repentance is also a lifelong process. Fourth point here. Repentance, as I mentioned earlier, precedes and leads to baptism. That's where we start. We begin with repentance. Leads to baptism, which leads to receipt of God's Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. Okay. That Holy Spirit then leads us to a new way of living. And it's a way of living that seeks to obey God's commands and do his will. And when we do this, we are guided, directed by God's wisdom, God's insight, and God's love. And he walks us into his love and what it means to live like that. But repentance does not end with baptism. Repent, believe, and be baptized. Yeah, but it doesn't stop when you're baptized. Repentance is a lifelong process. Go to 1 John chapter 1. Verse 8, and uh, I've hit this scripture a couple of times lately. Do it again. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we claim, and he's writing to you, he's writing to the church, writing to believers, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Something's wrong. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us for our sins and purify us from all righteousness. Remember the cycle that I drew? And if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. and He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So a committed follower of Christ must continue to confront and to overcome sin in his or her life. On both levels. And sometimes we, we slip up, we slide back into our old ways. And if so, we need to repent. We need to seek forgiveness. And we need to let those sins be covered by Christ's blood. So we keep on repenting. Go to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 5, and through verse 10. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, fleshly way of thinking, sexual immorality, impurity, lust. So he's touching on both things here. He's talking about the transgressions. He's also talking about attitudes. Evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Those are all attitudes, all motives and emotions and such. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. So our battle with our attitudes and our motives and our emotions continues as well. 
And these often remain hidden until they are revealed by some sort of crisis. Like with Job, you know, great analogy. How do you get toothpaste out of a tube? You squeeze it. Right? You know what's a, you want to know what's inside this tube of toothpaste? Squeeze it. Sometimes that stuff only becomes apparent to us in crisis, trial or sickness, persecution. And God leads us into these things so that we might accomplish that deeper level of repentance that develops the mind of Christ and the great love of God in us. The higher level, that's where God wants us to go. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And I picked that scripture just to kind of underscore this concept. This is a lifelong process. It's renewal of the mind. Lifelong process. Next slide. Last slide. What does God want from us? What does God want? What does he really want? We know that if we compare ourselves to the full righteousness of Christ, the glory of God, living color in the flesh for us, we will always fall short. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God, which is in Christ. Whether we're talking about transgressions, or whether we're talking about the deeper-rooted attitudes, we fall short. So, if it's not possible for us to ever quite get there, if we are forever reaching and always falling short, what does God want? What does he want? What's he looking for? What does he want to see when he peers into your heart? What does he want to see? I think there's many answers. Okay? And the caveat I want to put out there. But one thing that he wants to see is desire. He wants to see desire. What he saw in David. David had a lot of problems. But he had desire. Go to Psalm 119, verse 5. Desire. Psalm 119, uh, verse 5 through 10, if you would. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. And it kind of reminds me of what God said to Israel after they received the Ten Commandments. You know, He said, oh, that they had a heart in them to obey. Only they had the desire to obey me. Well, the Psalms here says, oh, that I had that desire. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. And I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me. Stray from your commands. That's a prayer for desire. Let me have that desire. That desire for obedience. That desire for continued repentance. 
and that desire, I guess, in some ways to be found moving forward, let that be found in me. It's a good prayer. Think on it. Meditate on it. And live it.